hustlers, road players, tournament champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Hey guys, Joey Ryan, Pool Player Podcast. First, I just want to thank everyone for all of the messages and notes and and wishing me well and hoping that I was feeling better. Yes, I am feeling better. I'm feeling great. I have my studio, though. I moved everything into the bedroom and I worked in there for a week and I haven't had a chance to set it back up yet. So that's why I'm doing this video here out in the backyard. You'll notice the soccer goal (laughs) over there. Uh, We're always playing soccer back here. But thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I'm feeling great. And today's episode is just awesome. You're going to love it. Uh, Right when I started this podcast, I said, I really want to get this guy on. And it's Tony Robles. Tony has been a fantastic player for several decades and uh, just a presence in the Northeast. He uh, also ran a successful tour, the Predator Pro-Am Tour and he was a league operator uh, and ran some other events there in New York City. And the thing about this episode that you're gonna love is the advice that he gives. He gives some amazing advice in this episode that frankly, I wish I had a decade or two ago, I'd probably be a heck of a lot better player than I am. So guys, tune in, uh, make sure you hit the share button, like it, If you haven't subscribed to the channel yet, please subscribe and hit up the comments. I'm curious to see what you think of this amazing episode with Tony Robles. Hey, Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure being here. Um, I I have to say that I really admire what you're doing, and I think that it's a good thing for the pool community, and I'm very grateful that you're giving uh, the players a chance to you know, catch up with people out there that uh, they haven't seen in a while. Awesome. Well, you know, you were on a short list of mine of people that I wanted to talk to. And, you know, really because of your reputation and you're such a great player. So I really want to just dive in and get to know you a little better. So tell me, uh, how did you get started playing pool? Well, um, my dad uh, used to go to this pool hall to gamble with a, a buddy of his. Believe it or not, buddies, even though they gambled all the time. I think that's possible, I guess. Um, and uh, I watched him play. And when I watched him play, he beat him, I believe, for $300. And every time he won a game, I was only like 12 years old. I said, go, Dad, go, Dad. <laughs> but what really, <laughs> it was it was actually, I remember that like it was yesterday. You know, you, you don't, don't, no kid wants to see the top losing, you know. Yeah. And um, at some point, um, I started listening to the sound that the balls made when they hit the back of the pocket, whenever they hit it with a lot of speed. And I said, man, that sounds so cool. I want to be able to do that. So I asked my dad if he can, uh, you know, bring me there the following day to let me play a bit. And he asked the pool owner for permission because, you know, they didn't allow minors there unless they came in with their parents. So, you know, unless they were, you were 16 years or older. So I went there the next day and started hitting some balls. And a friend of his took note. And he could tell how eager I was to learn. So he gave me a book that was written by Steve Miserat. And I went home that night very excited. And I read the entire book. And the following day, I was practicing left and right hand spin, even though I had no clue what I was doing. And a guy looked at me. The guy looked at me. He says, 
you're already practicing spin? How is that possible? <laughs> I said, I read the book in one night. It was, it was, it was cool. Oh man. Was your dad a really good player? Um, my dad played semi-pro speed. Okay. He wasn't a pro, but he almost got there. You know, after that, he, uh, decided to go partners with, uh, with the one guy and, and bought a pool hall and then, uh, went to a bigger place and that didn't work out. And then he decided to go on his own and he opened up a place called Tony's pool room because I'm Tony junior oh. and uh, that ran for 17 years. And you know, that's where I did most of my practice after I uh, finished high school. When I finished high school, I practiced six days a week, 12 hours a day, six days a week for two and a half years straight. Wow. Where was this Tony? Uh, this was in a place uh, in Brooklyn where Mike Tyson grew up, Brownsville. Uh, I've been it there. Was a very, yeah, very bad area. Uh, you know, eventually my dad had to close after 17 years because they had a shootout across the street. Uh, they killed someone. They killed someone next door to the pizzeria, and they killed someone across the street on the other side in a, in an apartment building. And then, you know, uh, they tried they, to break into the pool room, and that's when he realized it was time to close shop. Wow. Yeah, I've actually been there. So uh, my ex uh, had family in Brownsville and we took the train out. We were going to take a cab and she's like, no, no, I know Brooklyn. Don't worry. And we took the train out and it got kind of scary when we got out towards oh, yeah. Brownsville. It was pretty rough. <laughs> well, if you've never been to, you know, uh, uh, Brownsville and you're familiar with that, you know, that type of scenery, you, you feel uncomfortable. So I, I get that, you know, but me, I grew up around that. So I feel perfectly comfortable around it. So I, I know the feeling. Yeah. So when was the moment that you realized that you could be pretty good at pool? Was there a, a point in time where it just clicked? Yes, I, I played in the world, the junior world championships, a straight pool version of it in the Roosevelt Hotel, which was on 45th and Madison, where they used to have the prestigious world 14.1 championships. Uh, that Mike Siegel won one year, Nick Varner, Steve Miserak, all the greats played in it. Um, I didn't have the confidence then when I was 17 to believe that I could be good. But then when my dad uh, started taking me to these weekly tournaments, um, I would play in a tournament and I would do okay. I really felt like I was going to pass out because of how nervous I got when I was 18 years old. Um, it, it was hilarious. Um, but there was one time where I eventually won an event. And when I won the event, I went up to my dad and I said, Dad, you know how lucky you have to be to win this tournament? I'm thinking this all luck, you know? So I went ahead and played the following week and I won again. And I said, Dad, you know how super lucky you have to be to win two weeks in a row? What are the odds of that? And then when I went the third week and I won it the third week in a row, I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I think I can get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> so and then when i finished high school as i said earlier i started practicing you know six days a week 12 hours a day for two and a half years straight and uh i built my confidence little by little as i started competing and beating players that i looked up to growing up yeah so you're known as probably the nicest guy in pool and you know i was a huge fan i would go to the super billiards expo every year and you don't know because I'm sitting in the stands just admiring your game and the way you handled yourself. And in fact, my arch nemesis in the D.C. area was Ryan McCreesh, who, you know, I'm sure you know from up in 
in the New York area while you were playing him one year at the Super Billiards Expo. I'll never forget this. And he's beating you. I want to say it was a race to 10 maybe or something. And he's beating you. He's on the hill and he's running out. If you remember this, I'll be shocked. But he's running out and he's got a hanger of a of a nine ball or 10 ball, whatever it was that year, right in the corner to win the match. And he stops and he goes and gets a drink of water and he comes back to the table and he shoots it straight into the rail and misses it. And then you get out and then you run out the next rack. Do you remember that? No, I do not. <laughs> it was probably I 10 years. Not. It was at yeah. least 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, but anyway, but a great he is, he is. But he was my arch nemesis because I could, you know, I was just close enough to almost beat him so many times and he'd end up getting there. And so I'm watching that match. And when he did that, I was like, serves you right for all those times you beat me, Ryan McCree. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but just watching the way that you carry yourself and now hearing that your dad was such an influence, uh, did that play a role in kind of how you uh, became the person that you are? I mean, in my life, my dad was a good pool player, not a great pool player, but a, a really good pool player. And he always made sure to let me know how to carry myself rather than just be a great player, but also treat people well at the table. Did, did that same thing occur for you? Yes, there are two things that changed my life forever. Number one, my dad always told me, Never be a show-off. People don't like a show-off. And he said, always remain humble. That's very important. I already had that in spades, but he just reminded me of how important it is to be like that for the rest of your life, if possible. Uh, I already had that in spades, not because of a good situation, because of a bad situation. Because uh, most of my friends know that I was born with a stump right foot. So my right foot is actually less than half the size of, as my left foot. Really? Yeah. So growing up, I was bullied. I was made fun of. You couldn't get me to say a single word. You couldn't get me to take a sip of water if you invited me to your home because I didn't feel that I was worthy. And at the age of 15, I seriously contemplated suicide. And the one thing that stopped me was I kept thinking about how sad my mom and dad would be if they were to lose me, and that stopped me. Wow. And that was at age 15. Uh, when I was about 20, 21, when I started really getting into pool, I was on my way to a pool room called uh, Julian's in the city. It was either Julian's or Chelsea Billiards. It was one or probably both. Um, and I heard this amazing voice. It was a man singing. And I could not believe how beautiful this man sang. So I said, I got to see who this guy is. So I start running a bit because I, I can run, even though I have a stump foot, I can run. Um, and I turned the corner and it was a homeless man with one arm and one leg chopped off, left side. And I looked at him and I see the guy's as happy as a lark. And then I say to myself in my mind, I say, Tony, how is it possible this guy has an amazing voice and he's smiling because he's happy as could be and you felt sorry for yourself all those years growing up you know what i'm saying yeah. so it's like i i felt i felt kind of dumb you know and, and that was revealing and that from that moment on i i went back like the following day to see if i saw him to thank him because he made me change my attitude and i never looked back since then and it got to a point, I get goosebumps every time I talk about this, because I, have, I mean- I have chills right now, Tony, yeah. Yeah, well, it's like, if you know what it's like growing up having zero friends, I, I was always by myself, you know? 
I only I can count the amount of friends that I had uh, in school growing up. I can't even say one hand. It was like two or three. That was it, <laughs> you know. And I went from someone who you couldn't get to say a word or take a sip of water. Now you can't get me to shut up, <laughs> right? <laughs> now if you invite me to your house, we might have to take a trip to the grocery store because I might have to replenish all the food that you gave me because I'm going to tear it all up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like I saw how beautiful life was from that moment on. And I, ne I like I said earlier, I never look back, I changed my attitude and I decided to be someone complete and this is who I am, this is who I've always been. But I sincerely believe that growing up where I grew up helped mold me into the person that I was, not just growing up where I grew up, but having that, born with that foot the way I was. Yeah. Because I had a brother that was shot and killed in Bushwick, Brooklyn at the age of 25 with a shotgun of the throat because he was always living, you know, like the thug life. And I always tried my best to keep him out of trouble, but I never hung out with him or anyone else because I didn't feel like I was worthy. Mm. You see, so I just stayed home alone and I was trying to stay away from trouble. And in a way that helped keep me because growing up where I grew up in Bushwick, Brooklyn, Brownsville and then Bushwick, it was very easy for you to get in trouble. Very easy for you. So I'm pretty sure if I would have been born with a normal foot, I probably wouldn't even be here talking to you right now. So I really believe that in a way, being born like this actually saved my life, if you can believe that. I can believe it. And you know, what a story. Thank you for sharing that. I have a, I have such a similar story, Tony. It, it's different, but you know, there was that one person that changed everything for me. I had stage three tonsil cancer. I had to get chemo, wow. chemo and radiation. I'm 28 years old. And every morning I'd get chemo. Every afternoon I'd get radiation. And I did that every day of the week for seven weeks. And about five weeks into it, I was just defeated. And I wanted to die. I thought I was going to die. And this woman who probably weighed about 70 pounds and was definitely stage four. And I know she was dying. I call her my angel. She came hopping in front of me and she said, young man, you better perk up. You don't have anything to worry about. You're going to be fine. And life is not, life is too short to be sad. You need to be happy. And and it was just such an encouragement to me to see her knowing she's dying. Wow. And she got me to really change my entire outlook. And you know, with something like cancer, your outlook is so important. And after yeah. that day, I really believe she was an angel because after that day, everything changed for me. And I realized it. And when you were talking about the guy that you saw singing that beautiful song, Man, it just yeah. I, it chills all over because it's like such a similar experience. Wow. Wow. Well, God bless you, man. God bless you that you made it. Uh, you were able to make it through that. That's amazing. Now you have a beautiful family. You know, it's, it's awesome. It's amazing. I'm definitely. What, what, what thank you, Tony. I'm definitely blessed. So was there a moment? So you talked about when you started winning those tournaments and you realized you could be pretty good. You thought you were lucky at first and then you realized you were pretty good. Yeah. Was there a moment on the professional scene that you said, I've arrived. I won a big tournament or you beat a player. Was there, was there a moment like that? Yeah, 25 years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what happened is I knew that I was on the verge and I was knocking on the door for a long time. And I had actually finished runner up in the BCA nine board championships in 2002. In that same year, I also finished runner up on the play, in the players championship that they had in Florida. This is when the EBT was uh, running about 16 tournaments every year. 
the pro billiards tour. And I knew I then I finished third in a major tournament in uh, Pennsylvania. I lost to Sean Putnam and Charlie Williams in the semifinal and put Sean on the winning that tournament. But, you know, people ask me, why do you think it took you so long to win in 2004 when you won the BCA in, uh, in Las Vegas? And my response to that was, I wanted to watch my son grow up. I was so madly in love with that boy when I held him in my arms for the first time. I wanted to make sure that I was there for him every important moment that mattered to him. So I took a step back, took a break, whatever. I came back in 2004. Uh, I played one of the tournaments of my life. I won the BCA. I was A lot of players were actually uh, hating on me in a joking way, not a bad way. <laughs> they were joking me all the time. Oh, you're so lucky you won that tournament. Because that year, I believe we had 16. I want to say it was 16 stops on the tour when they had the tour back then. But that was the only um, uh, tournament that was televised on ESPN. So I mm. picked the right one to win because I was plastered <laughs> all over ESPN. And that, that did a lot of good for me. Yeah, that's awesome. So you have, like a lot of players from the Northeast, uh, you're a good straight pool player. Uh, when did you start playing straight pool? Was it something that from very early on, or was it something that you kind of learned to love? Um, I cannot describe how much I love straight pool. It is my passion. It is my number one game of choice. I think it's the purest form of pool. Uh, simply because uh, I feel like we have gotten to a point in the game where now it's easy to make the corner ball a nine ball. It's easy to make the balls in the side ball in the side pocket break in a ten ball. You could be equally skilled and still not have a chance if you can't rack the balls the same way your opponent racks them. And I think that's a shame, you know. Uh, but, you know, I don't blame them for doing it. Everyone has to make a living, you know. But in straight pool, you have to have knowledge. You have to know the game. You have to be able to run balls, you know. And I was very fortunate to have grown up in New York because New York is a mecca of uh, straight pool. I mean, in the, I was just telling someone today, I actually gave my very first lesson here in Miami since I moved here oh, really? a month ago. Yeah. yeah, and I was telling the guy how uh, Amsterdam Billiards – has had over 70 to 90 players on their Monday night straight pool league. 70 to 90. They have to, they have to shut it down they have, because they have a limit because they only have so many tables. They have like 22, 23 playable tables, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm suffering from a little asthma today. But um, I was fortunate enough to have grown in a state that has some of the greatest trade players to ever come out of New York. You know, growing up, uh, there was Gene Nagy. Gene Nagy was a legend in New York, ran over 400 balls a couple of times. George McCullough Jr., another one that a lot of people never heard of, ran 400-plus balls many times, ran 336 balls at the age of 58 right before he passed away. Wow. You know, Johnny Ervolino. You had Danny Baruti, who unfortunately moved to uh, California. You have Steve Lipsky, who, in my opinion, is one of the greatest talents I've ever seen. And he's a really close friend of mine. And uh, I miss playing with him. I was playing with him quite often in New York before, you know, this pandemic hit. You, you know, uh, Tony, you know, Tommy what, uh, 
you brought up Steve Lipsky. It's funny because I would go up to New York occasionally with my ex, and I went into Amsterdam, and I had my cue, and I'm figuring out, find somebody to play some nine ball or eight ball, and uh, Steve Lipsky was there, and I didn't really know him, and he said, I'll play you some and play me some straight pool, and you're right. Man, what a talent and really cool guy, too. You know, I, yeah. I I, I ended up hitting it off with him and he showed me some shots and things. Cause you know, with straight pool, if you don't play a lot of it, and even if you make the break ball and you go into the rack with the wrong English or the wrong angle or the wrong speed, you get stuck in there a lot. And that kept happening to me against him. And he's like, here's what you got to do on that shot, you know, and help me out. So really good guy, Steve Lipsky. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I mean, I'm not surprised at all because that's the kind of guy that Steve Lipsky is, yeah. you know, um, and as I say, being I, I could watch him play all day, and especially since he's left-handed, and he has one of the best break shots I've ever seen. I think he definitely shoots some break shots way better than I do, and I'm a straight player. Wow! But man, his break shots—he hits it with such authority and power and confidence. It's such a joy to watch, and you know he rarely gets stuck in the rack, man. And that's that's a talent in itself, you know. Yeah. So. Like I said, I was blessed to be able to have grown up with so many great straight pool players. Jonathan Smith is another one. There's so many I can name. You know, I'm just rattling off names as I start remembering them. <laughs> well, uh, Michael Yednak from up there recently started putting out videos uh, about straight pool. And I think it's really... Another one. Yeah, it's really helped to kind of get more interest out there about the game. And it's funny because I just released our last week's episode... Uh, John Schmidt was on and he was saying from California, the fact that he plays straight pool is like a miracle because <laughs> nobody in California <laughs> plays straight pool. Um, but I'm curious what you think of his world record. I mean, can you even wrap your head around 626 balls? Funny story about John Schmidt is he came to New York to a place called Corner Billiards where I used to be the house pro. And that was before that was actually turned to Amsterdam Millions. <clears throat> And um, he introduced himself to me, and we both asked each other, hey, you want to play a set just to, you know, fool around? I love playing pool. <clears throat> I played him one set of nine ball. I beat him, I think it was 11-4, 11-5. He said, can we play another one? I say, sure. Drills me 11-2. <clears throat> Drills me. Didn't miss a ball. You could see the look of determination on his face. And I was so impressed with this game. I was really, really like saying to myself, wow, this kid is a great talent. He's going to go somewhere. But then something interesting happened. <clears throat> he had never really played straight pool that much at all. But he was curious about all the high runs because uh, um, Amsterdam is famous for having a, a high run board there. I'm pretty sure you've seen it. I did, yeah, Amsterdam. I did. <clears throat> and he says... Who has a high run here? And I said, well, you know, back then it wasn't Amsterdam Bitters, it was Corner Bitters. I had the high run of 189. And he says, I want to try to beat it. And I said, man, I would love to watch that, you know. I was all for it because I love watching high runs. Do you believe that I only went there maybe twice more that week and the manager called me and told me that John was there almost eight hours a day trying to beat my record? Wow. So when I found out that John was trying to tie, I mean, break the record, Moscone's record, I knew he was going to do it. And I did, you can ask him, he'll tell you. I've been doing that. I've been saying that since day one. There was no doubt in my mind because I know how determined 
And tenacious he, he, he is because of the fact that I experienced that when he was younger. You know, <clears throat> back in the days when uh, people, a, a lot of players used to go into the AZ Billiards forums and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of players stopped going to those forums because they would get into arguments with people because people would like to start stuff up with them. So one guy started something with him. <clears throat> he wasn't happy about it. And he said, uh, you know, he all he did is put a simple post where he said, if anyone's interested in sponsoring me in the U.S. Open, uh, please PM me, you know, send me a private message. Uh, I would love to be, you know, to, to play in it. They tore him up. They said, you know, how dare you? You should be ashamed. You just won a tournament last week. What do you do with that money? <clears throat> they just tried to tear him up. And I felt bad for him. And, you know, they did the same thing to Sean Putnam one time. They asked Sean if he was going to go to uh, this tournament. He said, no, I have to go to the Pro Tour stop because I'm ahead of Johnny Archer by, like, I don't know how many points for player of the year. And the guy wrote back. He says, you're never going to be better than Johnny Archer, this and that, whatever. It's like a whole bunch of bang. But <clears throat> long story short, I guess another gentleman felt bad for John Schmidt, and he offered to sponsor him. And he, in return, won that half the money. I was there that year. And John Schmidt won the tournament. Wow. <laughs> and he won, he played some of the best nine ball I've ever seen in my life. This guy was a runaway truck, man. It was like there was no stop. And he was free stroking, shooting oh, yeah. everything in between the eyes. It was unbelievable. So <clears throat> I know it's kind of a bit of a long story, but to answer your question, it does not surprise me at all that he broke Willie Moscone's record because I've always felt that if there's anyone that could do it, it was. John. And the reason I say that is because I'm a straight pool player. Do you know how many times I ran 150 balls trying to run 200? And I wanted to give up as soon as I miscued on 105, 149. It's not easy to want to. You have to start over. I know. And look how many times John had to start over. But guess what? <clears throat> I learned something that has stuck with me since. When I won the BCA Open in 2004 in Vegas, I almost quit pool for good two months prior to that event because I would ju had just started training, physical training with a buddy of mine who was into pool. So I was teaching him so that he can teach me. Mm. And I had just started signing a new sponsorship agreement with uh, a sponsor back then that was gonna you know, sponsor me for the events that year. And <clears throat> I was so disgusted that I finished 13 through 16 at the Players' Championship in the Super Builders Expo for like, like the gazillion time that I just called my friend. I said, I'm never going to win a tournament. I'm done. I'm handing up the gloves. I'm just disgusted. I should have won a tournament a long time ago. Not giving myself credit for the fact that I really wanted to spend more time with my son. So I wasn't really being fair to myself. I wasn't really putting in the time. It took my trainer about 30 minutes to convince me to finish out the year, he said, look, you just signed a new contract, finish it out, play in all the tournaments, and then if you want to quit, I won't argue with you. I said, you know what? Fair enough. The very next tournament, Ryan, I go, I play one of the worst matches I ever played in my career in the very first round. I had a buddy of mine that watched that first match and then flew back to New York, right? Because he got knocked out of tournament quickly. When he found out that I won the tournament, he said, how in the world did he win the tournament? He played so horrible the first match. <laughs> Right. But from that moment on, I kept playing better and better and better and better and better. And I won the whole thing. 
And I called my friend and I thanked him. I still thank him to this day. And I said, you know, with the lesson that I learned, the most valuable lesson that I learned from that experience was you could be this close to achieving your dream, but you will never find out unless you continue to move forward. And that work to me was more valuable. And that's something that I try to pass on to my students when I'm giving them private lessons where they're feeling a little down about their games. You know, when someone comes to me for a private lesson and they say, hey, Tony, um, I'm feeling a little down. Uh, I'm thinking of quitting because I'm in a slump. Congratulations. Tony, why are you congratulating me? I just told you I'm in a slump. Congratulations, because now you contacted me at the right time. I'm going to help you solve this. And now you have one less thing to worry about when you play pool. Once you figure it out, you're going to end up going back in stroke. But now you're going to learn what is causing this. So that way you make sure you never make that mistake again. <clears throat> you see, so it's just little bits and pieces that everything, you know, all come together at a certain point. You just have to know how to put those together at the right time. And, the, and, and, and when you're playing the game of pool, I've been trying, I, I told the guy that I gave a lesson to today, you cannot continue to practice the shots that you know. You have to work on your weaknesses because every shot that you master in the game of pool is a brand new weapon that you just added to your arsenal to use against your enemy. If you're going into a tournament and you have someone that has 75 weapons in their arsenal and you have 50, that's like going to war and you have a bazooka and a grenade. They have a bazooka and grenade and a tank. <laughs> you know, you have to have more weapons in your arsenal than your opponent, because if you don't, they're going to beat you in the long run, no matter what. Yeah, that's that's great. I love that. That whole description about, you know, not giving up when you're so close, you know, and, and you're so discouraged, you know, but you're right. That's often when a breakthrough happens. You know, a breakthrough doesn't happen when you're on top of the world. You know, it happens when you're struggling. And that's what yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened, right? What happened is I used to go to my parents and my friends. I'm sick and tired of their saying, Johnny Archer, U.S. Open champion, this person, uh, uh, players champion, this person, world champion, Tony Robles, New York City. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wanted to be recognized as a champion, too. You know, so when I won that, wow, I, I say I can finally be recognized as a player that I always knew I was, but more importantly, as a champion. And that's something, no matter what anyone says, it doesn't matter to me. I know who I am. I know how I play. They can never take that victory away from me, you know, yeah. and that's what I try to do. I try to encourage. So, you know, there were a lot of times that John Schmidt was down and I would write little messages here and there. So you got to keep going. If anyone can do it, you can do it. So. I'm super proud of him, super proud of him. And there's no doubt in my mind, if he wanted to do it again, he'd do 700 easily, Yeah, you know? He he said one regret that he has was the ball after breaking Moscone's record, just unscrewing his cue and walking away. Because <laughs> then nobody could ever say, I beat John Schmidt's record. They just, no, John Schmidt just quit. You know, he beat Moscone and yeah, yeah. he walked yeah. away. You know, that would have been funny. <laughs> that would have been funny. Yeah. But, you know, a, 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 a lot of people um, knew, you know, there was this very famous player from Brooklyn, New York, named Michael Euphemia that uh, he used to own, supposedly he used to own the Guinness Book of World's Record with a run of 625 before they decided to change it to Willie Moscone's because they changed the rules saying you must have had 50 or more witnesses to witness the run mm -hmm. or breaking the record. So technically, supposedly, I don't know if it's true or not, but this is what I heard growing up, 
that Michael Euphemia officially had the record of 625. So John 626 took care of both. Wow. No one could say, what are the odds of that, right? Yeah, By one. One ball. So if someone were to come say, well, you might have beat Moscone's record, but you didn't beat Michael Euphemia's record. Yes, I did. By one. Yeah. You know, that's what's so incredible about that 626. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to him about, you know, John, there must have been shots where, you know, straight pull, there's a lot of three foot shots and just positioning. And then every once in a while, you roll up on a ball where you got to go up to one of those top corners and it's really hairy. And he said, man, you wouldn't believe the pressure. And this is a guy that's played in Moscone Cup. And he said, that's the only thing he can equate it to is Moscone Cup. And ironically, they're so different, right? Thousands of screaming fans. And he was doing it in front of 20 people in some pool hall on the coast of California, you know? So, but yeah, what an accomplishment. And thanks for your, your feedback on that. I really appreciate it. Who would you say is your biggest rival over the years? Do you have someone that maybe you struggled against or just always popped up in your bracket and you had a hard time with? Anyone like that? I honestly can say I, I never felt, you know, I've never felt afraid of anyone in the, in the game of pool. I never felt like if someone beat me seven times in a row, uh, they have my number because I've always felt that every opportunity is a new opportunity to win. I, I've always had that mental attitude where uh, they might say, well, you know, in this corner, Tony Robles, B-State champion, in this corner, 10-time world champion, blah, blah, blah. Prove it to me. You're a world champion, prove it to me. Beats the crap out of me. I play him again next week in another tournament. You know what? I'm not convinced. I need you to prove it again. You know? And if he beats me again, I'm still not convinced. I'm never going to be convinced. Prove it again. Because one thing that I like to teach my students when I give private lessons, right, is it's okay to respect your opponent. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's actually necessary to keep you on edge. But once you get to a point when you're in an actual match and you start respecting your opponent more than you respect your own game, you might as well screw the cue because you lost the match before you even started. So when I say that, I don't mean it as a disrespect. I mean it as a way of me staying focused on my game mm -hmm. because I believe with every fiber of my being that I'm a great player. You know, not everyone's saying that. Not everyone can, can, can think that way. But, you know, it's so important to believe in yourself and you know what i'm talking about in this game because every time oh man i'm just happy i'm playing the world champion if you're just happy playing the world championship i mean the, the world champion the reigning world champion why would you spend two thousand or twenty five hundred to fly across the country playing the tournament just to be happy that you're playing the world champion it's not going to happen yeah you're just pretty much throwing your money away so with all the years that you've played pool, I'm sure you've ran into a few characters. Who would you say is one of the biggest characters that you've seen out there? Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite all-time characters was a pretty strong player. He could play anywhere from A-plus to open speed, near-pro speed. And his name was Stu, Stu Pomerantz. P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z, Pomeranz. Man, was this guy character. He used to call himself the shoe man. Why? I have no clue. But the reason why I think he used to call himself the shoe man is because uh, one time he was trying to make a game and the guy didn't want to play him and he got so annoyed that he looked, you know, you're lucky you're not playing me. Because if you played me, i leave shoe prints all over you. <laughs> because I'm the shoe man. Oh, man. 
this guy was just hilarious. He was, he was. Just, I don't. I mean, I believe he passed away several years ago. But this game has had so many great characters. I once came to Florida when I used to go on on, on the road many years ago. Uh, you know, I was trying to build experience by gambling because from my dad's friend, who was an all-around player, was the best player in his room when I was growing up. He played all the games great. He told me the quickest way to build experience is by gambling, and he was right. I gambled for a couple of years until I felt that I built ex en built enough experience, and once I did, I stopped gambling because gambling was really never my thing. So you brought up gambling. Did you ever have any crazy like things happen when you were out there gambling? I can tell you this. I once went and played a match against a guy in Alabama. And I was with a friend of mine who was on the road. We were on the road, right? And uh, someone who was taking us sent us both to different pools because he knew the area. He knew all the players, all the rooms, whatever. And... <clears throat> He decided to bring his buddy along without the permission of our stake horse. I wasn't crazy about it because this guy was a hustler, not in pool, but you know, he had like, you, you know how you have the three card Monty? Yeah. Well, he had the, the top with the ball inside version of that. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So what he would do is he would like go in the middle of the street and then his buddy would come over. He would let him win on purpose, like 50 bucks. So people think that they can win. And then he was, would go ahead and then you know steal people's money yeah because he just had a way of hiding it right so i played this guy who was a great player but the way i was playing i knew i could beat him but there was one thing he played me on a table where the cue ball was so small that if you froze it to the rail you had to elevate to hit it because if not you miss cue automatically you can shoot not even close to a level cue not even close to it not even like this you had to literally elevate so he kept playing me safe and leaving me by the rail because that's his table. I didn't know that. So when I saw that I couldn't beat him, I broke. Uh, no, I didn't break even. He actually beat me $300. I shook his hand. I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I appreciate the game, but I, there's no way I can beat you on this table. It's just the, the, the cue ball is too small. You know, he said, I understand. So I said, all right, guys, let's go. So we're walking out. And as we're walking out, a shotgun is pointed to my friend's buddy with the three three tops. He had just hustled the guy who I played's buddy for a hundred bucks. And he looked at him and he says, you better give my friend the money back because believe me when I tell you, if I shoot you down, they're going to take my story over yours. So you, you better do it if you know it's good for you. And you either want to give the money back, I have to get into an argument with him. I don't argue with anyone. <laughs> you know, $100. I have to get into a for a hundred dollars. I said, give them the money back. Are you dumb? And from that point on, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to New York. If I ever go, I'm just going to go with someone that I feel I can trust more and not worry about dealing with anything that has nothing to do with me. Yeah. And I did. And I never had a problem. I never had a problem. Wow. But yeah, that was a true story, man. I'm not going to lie. I, was, I knew he, I knew, I, and you know what's cool about it? I'm not going to lie. The guy, when he said that, but I forgot to mention it, he says, I will, I will shoot you down and, and, you know, they will take my side over yours. And Tony, just so you know, this has nothing to do with you. You're a gentleman. It's just him. That's what he said. So that made me feel more at ease, but I was still trying to convince him not to shoot yeah. you know, the sure. guy that I was on the road with, buddy, you know, it's like, I don't want to see anyone killed in front of me. I saw that happening when I was 13 years old. I used to play with this one kid, Jimmy, never forget him as long as I live. Really good kid. He was just, you know, misled. You know, when he was uh, about 19, 20 years old, 
And I tried to play pool with him every day to encourage him to play because, you know, I knew that he was, you know, going the wrong path. Mm -hmm. And one day I see a crowd gathering across the street from my dad's pool hall. I go outside, run about a block and a half, and there's Jimmy on the street with half his face blown off. And I said, man, Jimmy. And it's like, I still have that image in my mind as clear as day. This is just something that you never forget. Literally, like, seconds after I saw that, that's when someone came and they put a blanket over him and stuff like that. And it's just, you grow up in an environment like that, you appreciate the, the little things in life and, and, you know, the accomplishments that you have and how much you're able to change your life. You know, and talking about changing your life, you know, <clears throat> one piece of advice that I would give a lot of players out there is if you ever have the opportunity to make a living in this game, other than playing in tournaments, take advantage of it. Look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, am I a people person? Am I capable of being a people person? Am I capable, am I very approachable, you know? A lot of people have uh, supposedly, you know, people don't want to tell me things because they don't want to make me upset even though I really wouldn't get upset because like I said earlier, you know, I'm, very comfortable with who I am in my own skin. Um, that this person says that, that person says that, and, and they're like, you could say, almost jealous. You know, I, they've been able to make a living in the game of pool, running tournaments, running leagues, giving private lessons, doing private corporate parties, uh, giving lessons to high-profile people in the city. And I've done it all on my own. And I've been able to do that because I ne I'll never forget the one time I was, believe it was 1998 or 1999, when the Camel Pro Billiard Series was around. R.G. Reynolds Tobacco Company started a tour that they ran for either two or three years. And what was awesome about this tour is that they would give a $60,000 bonus to whoever finishes ranked number one on the tour that year. 30000 per second. I finished ranked 12th two years in a row, and I got a check for 7500 just for finishing rank 12. Yeah. So one year, yeah, it's awesome. One year, <clears throat> the first year they did that, they um, they sat Grady Matthews on my table, and I knew Grady well because I had gambled with him a couple of times. And uh, we became friends, and that year, they when they were giving the, the awards, they gave me my $7,500 check, and then they decided to do for the first time a sportsmanship award and when they announced me as a winner, I was stunned. I was so, and then when I found out that all my peers voted for me 100%, man, I, I, I cried tears because I couldn't believe it. I was so honored. So they gave me a $2,500 check for that. Wow. So I have 10 grand. I walked to the table, very happy. And then Grady looks at me and looks at everyone around the room like this. And he says, you know, I had 15,000 in the bank at the beginning of the year. I used it all to play on the tour this year. I played in all 16 stops. I never cashed in once. And he put his head down like this, and I said, I can't believe I played this game for 40 years and had nothing to show for it. And I saw two tears rolling down his eyes, Ryan. And that hit me so hard because I knew Grady well enough to know that he was a very proud man, and I had never seen him cry before. you know. And when I saw that emotion come out of him, and how sad he was, I promised myself then and there that I'm going to make it my business to make sure that I am not in his position by the time I reach his age. And I held true to that. 
And that's why when people ask me, Tony, but you have the potential to be a great player or win this many tournaments, whatever. Well, guess what? I was busy making sure that I made a living first. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> if I'm in Manhattan, before the pandemic, I was charging 125 an hour for private lessons if they came to Amsterdam and take the lesson. If I went to a person's house, I had to charge 250 an hour with a two-hour minimum. And I got it with no problem. If I did a private party, I would get 500 an hour with a two-hour minimum. The thing is that if you do it in the right city, you have to ask for the right amount. You can't be afraid because the worst thing that can happen is they'll go down from there. Yeah. And I'm seeing so many players with so many great reputations that are in so many great cities that they can do the same thing. They're just not doing it because they're focused on a game that really hasn't gone anywhere in 41 years that I've been playing yet. They, they've had people come, come and go saying, you know, promising this, promising that. And I'm not saying that they should stop trying. But what I am saying is that in the interim, while you're waiting for this to blow up, you can always stay prepared, but make a living doing it. And I just don't feel like there are enough people out there doing that. And it's a real shame. I agree with you 100%. And there's so many people that I've run into, even since I started doing this podcast, that I look at them and I'm like, wow, you can do so many things. You know, you could do so many yeah. things. Like I was talking to John Schmidt after we recorded the episode. And I said, John, why don't you try to be a motivational speaker? Every year for my day job, the company hires somebody, pays them $20,000 to come in and give a motivational speech. You know, and I could write you an outline. You know, it starts with, I went out to break this world record and here's what I faced along the way. People would eat that up. And at the end, you roll it into, so you got to stick with your goals and da 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 and whatever it is. You know, and there's so many people, I think you're right, Tony, that they're kind of sitting back waiting for somebody to change the landscape, waiting for some sponsor to come in and have a million dollar tournament. And that's when things are going to change for them. But I really admire people like you that just took the bull by the horns and said, no, I need to change my future. I need to, to do something a little different along the way. So let's talk about that real quick. What was it like? Take me through the negative side of that, right? You, you were a, uh, full-time player and then you started branching out and running your tour give me the good bad and ugly of running the tour well i mean you know the tour was many years later after that um and the tour only happened because of my wife gail you know gail um i can't tell you enough how incredible she is not just because she's my wife but you know she has a lot of great business sense because she was brought up that way and she's the kind of person that if you give her one idea, she turns it into 10, hmm. you know, she's really good with that, that, that kind of stuff. And pretty good pool player if, too, right? Yeah. 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 And she's a, she's a CPA third generation of her family. So oh, wow. she has her own business here. Um, so, uh, you know, she just convinced me and helped me immensely, uh, in starting a tour and starting the league. And I had known nothing about business. And when, uh, she helped me the way she did. It helped me appreciate all the hard work that it goes into running your own business. You know, so I was fortunate enough to have run my own business, at, which was called the National Amateur Pool League, uh, for about 11 plus years and the Predator Pro-Am Tour, which we started in 2008 for 12 plus years. Um, and it, it was quite the ride. The pandemic pretty much shut that down. But at the same time, I didn't realize how much stress I had on myself because of the fact that I worked more than 30 to 40 weekends a year between the league 
and the tour and lessons. So I spent almost no time with my family. Yeah. And now that my son, Antonio, is three years old, I want to be there for every baseball game if possible, this and that, and now I'm able to do it. Yeah. So, you know, my goal now that I'm down here is make the most out of it. Like I told you earlier, you have to make the most out of it. Start lessons again and compete. I want to be able to compete more. I'm 54. I'm not getting any younger. I only have so many years left where I can actually compete at a higher level. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, and I agree wholeheartedly. I have... You know, I play pretty good pool, nothing like you, but I have three little kids who are all playing soccer and different sports. And I was just asked to go to a tournament in a few weeks. And I said, let me check the calendar. It was a team event. Looked at the calendar. Kids have soccer games. Sorry, guys. Kids have soccer games. You know, I, I'll play pool when they're done playing soccer. You know, so I, I'm right there with you. I get it. Now, you were asking me how was it running the tour? Well, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, but I think the difference between um, myself and other people and, and my wife is she took care of the business side of it. I took the customer service portion of it. So whenever something bad happened, I was really good with people. I always listened to them. I did the best that I could to correct the situation. If it was even possible, uh, we would digest it. Uh, figure out if there's any way we can make a change. If we made the change, would it benefit the tour as a whole? And if it did, we will make the change, this and that. Um, but I was not one of those tournament or tour directors that would say, you know what, too bad. If you don't like it, don't play on the tour. I don't believe in that. because, And I always made it my business to make sure that I knew every single person's name that played on my tour. Not only did I know everyone's name, but I knew how to spell it, no matter how, what their name was. And they, they, they love that so much because they couldn't believe that someone that they consider a pro player would be willing to take out the time to do that. And I didn't just do that for my tour. I did it for my league. And I also used to show when I ran my league, I would show up once a week in the beginning. And they couldn't believe that I kept showing up. And that's because I care about you. I don't just appreciate the fact that you're playing in my league. I care about the fact. There was this one guy that came to me years ago and said, Tony, I tried your league. I think it's fantastic. I think you're doing a wonderful job, but I'm going to go back to this other league. But thank you so much. I had a wonderful experience. And uh, I said, look, I'm sorry to see you go, but I just want you to let you know that the door is open and you're more than welcome to come back anytime. That's exactly what I told him. You know what happened? He played one season in another league and came back to me the following to that. And he said, you know why I came back, Tony? Because I appreciated the fact that you didn't get angry because I quit. And you told me I'm welcome back at any time, but more importantly, you didn't make me feel like you own me. Because a lot of these leagues act like they own the players when they actually do not. And that's, I think that's a big problem. Yeah. You know? And you know, that, that was basically it. And, you know, but like I said, there's absolutely, and I can't say this enough, no way on planet Earth I would have been able to accomplish what I accomplished without my wife. She's, she's the brains behind everything and my, my support. That's support awesome. System. You know, my for a while, my father was a division rep for one of one of the leagues out there, and he got a printout and let me read it one time of all the discipline that they had to hand down <laughs> on different players. And I, I vividly, vividly remember this one line in there where this one guy was suspended for spitting in the opponent's chalk. <laughs> I'm just wondering if I'm sure you've seen some crazy scenarios as a league you know, league operator and tournament director. Is there anything that kind of stands out like something crazy that happened? 
Um, you know, I mean, there was this one guy that came to play in one of my events. It wasn't a Predator Prime Tour. It was an NYC Championships that I had the pleasure of running with my wife, Gail, and Dr. Michael Fida. Dr. Michael Fida, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, philanthropist. Man, such a caring and giving person. But more importantly, he's a very close friend of ours. And he saw the job that Gail and I were doing with the New York City Ebo Championships. And he said, you know, I want to add two. No, you know what? 3,000. I want to add 3,000 to the championship this year. The following year, he added eight. I mean, five. Then the following year, he added eight. Then the year after that, I think he added 12. And in 2019, he added 15. And then he said, for 2020, I'm going to add 20,000 to the NYC championships. And it grew into like this huge event, huge event. And we were already talking about 2020. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic hit. And uh, once I hit, that screwed everything up. I'm pretty sure if we decided to do something in the future, he'll probably be all for it. But um, it, it was quite the experience of being able to work with someone like Michael. Um, as far as something bad happening, listen, you're always going to have your bad things happen here and there. Sometimes you actually have to get a little stern with people. And I, I have been known to do that a couple of times, even though it's extremely rare that you ever see me like that, but it has to be done sometimes. And, you know, the reason why I won't tell you the story about one situation where I had to kick out a guy uh, from the tour is because it had to do something some, with something bad, racism. Oh. And, you know, a lot of people were caught off guard by it and whatever, and, you know, I don't want to name names or get anyone in trouble, but it was pretty bad, and I had to take action. You know, I hate being put in that situation, but I know that, in order to make sure that you maintain your reputation and the reputation of the tour and the reputation of the sponsors, you have to take action when it's necessary. If it's to protect not just you, but the players, you have to be able to protect the players as well. But what I was going to tell you earlier is that, you know, when I had the NYC championships, the April championships, a gentleman came from another state. He wanted to play and I let him play. I let him play one of the higher divisions. He did He did good. He played very well. But then he got, like, blasted. And all of a sudden, he wanted to fight people. And then he wanted to fight this one guy, one of the top players in New York. And this guy's, like, really bold. This guy's like a monster. I, I, I'm looking at him. I'm thinking he's Bigfoot. The guy came from out of town. <laughs> but the little guy is no joke either. <laughs> yeah. you know. So, you know, you could tell. So we had to get in the middle of that. So we told him it's better if you're going to forfeit the match, you're not going to play, we suggest that you leave. So then he went to pay a tab, and then all of a sudden he went like this. And he hit Upstate Al in the face. And when he hit Upstate Al in the face like that, all hell broke loose, man. Wow. They just went after him. And we had to stop it and tell him. And then, you know, someone came looking for him the next day. They said, do you know where he is? I said, I have no idea where he is. You know, so, but then the guy, you know, wrote a message to me about three months after that, apologizing for what had happened. I felt bad for the guy. I really did because yeah. he's, the guy said that he was a genuine guy and I believe he is, but you know, people change when they drink and he yeah. had a little too much to drink. And, you know, unfortunately that, that didn't turn out well for him. Yeah. Well, Tony, going back to your playing career, can you share maybe your most crushing defeat? Crushing defeat. I hate to bring up a bad memory. <laughs> no, no, I'm no, curious. I'm trying to think because uh, I've had a couple here and there. 
You know, one one that affected me a bit was when we did the World Team Billiards in the 90s with the PBT. Um, they had, I believe it was Jim Rempe, Mike Siegel, Nick Varner, Kim Davenport, and I want to say either David Howard or Buddy Hall. They had Team America, and since I'm American, but they couldn't put me on the team because I was ranked six or seven. You had to be in the top five. They put me on Team Puerto Rico because that's where my parents were from, right? So right. what happened is they put me on Team Puerto Rico, and it was myself, Frankie Hernandez, Mike LeBron. I'm pretty sure a lot of people know who Mike LeBron is, and um, a couple of guys from Puerto Rico. And um, they were great players. Evangelita was one of them, and another one named Jose Robles. No relation to me. And um, another guy that's here from Florida played one year as well. But anyway, long story short, they called their world team billiards and they figured out a way to put a lot of money together and pay 50,000, 50, 50, 50,000 to the winning team. Wow. So they had world, uh, team Philippines, team Mexico, team Canada. So the United States team and the Filipino team were the heavy favorites to win the entire shebang. And we wound up playing Team Mexico, I believe, first, or Team Canada. And we beat both those teams. And they had strong players. I mean, the, the you know, Ernesto Dominguez or Rafael Martinez, they had some strong players. And Team Canada has some amazing players, too. Then in the third round or the semifinal, we had to play Team America. We squeaked by them. We actually beat them wow. to make it to the final against Team Philippines. And Team Philippines, it was Efren Reyes, Francisco Bustamante, <laughs> Jose Parica, Leonardo Andam, and Rodolfo Lua. <laughs> so it's like, but it was still because since we went that far, we beat Team America, we were really hoping or expecting that we could at least beat them, but forget about it. We had no shot. They drilled us like 9-2 or 10-2 or something like that. What a team. But that felt like a bit of a crushing uh, defeat for us. We felt pretty defeated. I know it was a team sport, but we felt pretty defeated. Um, another guy that I played um, beat me the first eight times he came to New York. His name is Jim Park oh, from yeah. Korea. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, an incredible player. One of the best jump shot shooters I've ever seen in my life, too. He was pushed out to all these jump shots and made it like 99.9% of the time. And everyone kept beating him. Everyone in New York would beat him. And when he played everyone, he never played that good like the way he played against me. When he played me, I kept, I kept thinking that I steal something from this guy. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't figure out what I was doing, you know. And he just, he just, he just, you know, had it for me, had it in for me. Even though, you know, we didn't have bad blood or anything like that. He was a super nice guy. And man, when he beat me like the eighth time in a row, I never forget that. I felt ridiculously defeated. But remember, I told you that I don't believe in anyone having my number. Yeah. Earlier, so sure enough, I played him in a tournament in Connecticut, out of all places, away from New York. Right. And I beat him for the first time. And when I did, I didn't celebrate or anything. I just acted like I do when I win any match. Shook hands, screw, unscrew my cue, put in my case, go on to the next match. You know? Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to give you a chance, Tony, to uh, call out any sponsors or I know you're giving lessons. I want you to be able to share with people how they can get in touch with you, especially since you're new. You're, you're in a new area now. And so I want to give you that opportunity. So have at it. Well, first off, um, I want to thank Predator Cues for being our sponsor because without having them as a title sponsor for 12 plus years in the tour, 
I don't think we would have succeeded the way we, we did. So, you know, shout out to them. They're an incredible company to work with. Such good people. Uh, you know, it, it was so positive, always encouraging. So we were very blessed to have them for 12 years. As far as lessons, yeah, I'm still teaching. Uh, I plan on teaching full time now that we're finally starting to settle in here. And I'm in Miami for now up until we find a new house near the Palm City area. That's where we're looking to move. It's about two hours north of where we're at. So we're just staying at a house right now until we find our permanent home. So I'll be teaching in Miami. And then after that, once we move, uh, I, I, you can find me in Palm City. And you can also uh, reach me on Facebook. You send me a message on Facebook, a uh, private message anytime. And also you can reach me at TonyRoblesNYC at gmail.com. TonyRoblesNYC at gmail.com. Um, and if you can subscribe to my channel, a YouTube channel, it would mean a lot. Um, I started one. It's, I don't have a lot of videos up because, unfortunately, I started, you know, uh, the process of moving and I had to take my table apart and sell it so that when we got our new house, I'll buy a new table. So I wasn't able to make a lot of videos because I was too busy uh, packing stuff. But um, as many of you know, I just did a video for GQ magazine. Did you get a chance to watch that, Ryan? I didn't see that. You got to share the link with me yeah yeah uh gq magazine uh interviewed a number of players um for a gig called the breakdown a series that they have called the breakdown where they would pick an expert from a particular field and have them break down certain scenes for movies and tv shows huh. so they wound up choosing me and uh lo and behold i think i, it, I believe it was december 23rd or 27th that it was released it's been about a little over a week that they released the video Right before I sat down for this interview, I looked at on YouTube and it's already at seven hundred and thirty thousand views. Wow! I never awesome. had a, I never had a video that had remotely close to anything like that. So I'm, I'm stoked about it, and I cannot thank GQ Magazine and Condé Nast enough for the opportunity that they've given me for that. So yeah, I'll make I worked sure. with them before. I'll make sure mm -hmm. to put the link in the description. You know, send me that link. I'll put the link in the description and also put a link to your YouTube channel so people can subscribe, you know, because even though you don't have many videos out, I'm sure you're going to, and people mm -hmm. will want to see the stuff that you're going to have out there. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be instructional yeah. and informative. So that would be great. Is there anybody you can think of that might be a really good interview for me uh, on the podcast? Michael Yetnak would be very interesting. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that because I've been, like I said, I've been following his videos and I actually reached out to him and we connected and I, I said, he didn't remember. Yeah, I played him in the uh, Maryland Straight Pool Championship one year and he didn't remember that. He had long hair back then. Like now it's a lot shorter. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I connected with him and I told him I really like his videos. So yeah, maybe I'll have him on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Anyone else? Any, yeah, and, any and colorful Steve people? Lipsky. That... Steve Lipsky, um, you know, even though I know a lot of people don't know him, but man, he's got a lot of interesting stories. He's, he's, uh, he's a good guy, all around guy. Um, let me think about that. If I can think of anyone else, I'll let you know. Um, Ralph Suquet is like my brother. Really? I don't know if you, oh yeah, Ralph Suquet is a really close friend of mine. Um, he stays, when, when Darren Appleton had the, Whirlpool series, um, he stayed at our house every time that uh, they had a stop there. We would drive there together. 
I'd love uh, to talk to Ralph. If you can hook that up, I would love it. He's one of my favorite players to watch, mainly because of his demeanor. You know, he can be yeah. losing eight to nothing or winning eight to nothing. You can't tell the difference when you look at him. He's just so professional and just seems yeah. to have the right approach and mindset when he plays. I just love watching him play. Yeah, he's awesome. He's a good guy. I will reach out to Ralph to see if I can get him interested in doing that. I'll let him know that I did an interview with you. Tony, if you were talking now, not one of your students or really just anybody that comes up to you and says, if you could help me with any piece of advice that would help me kind of make that leap to you know, the next level, they're a good player, maybe they run out, but they're not quite getting to that professional caliber, but they want to and they want to put in the work, what advice would you give them? The advice I would give them is, number one, make absolutely sure that you master your fundamentals. Because one of the biggest reasons why I see people fail to make it to a pro level is because they haven't quite mastered their fundamentals. Just today, the lesson that I was giving, this kid is left-handed and he has way more than enough uh, ability to become a professional player. But his bridge flinches just this much just like that, look, that's all it takes. Right before he strikes a cue ball on 90% of his shots. And I told him, and I said, picture this. If you take a rifle, you point it at a target, what would happen if you were to start to move your body forward right before you pull the trigger? You're going to miss a target every single time. Every time you move that bridge hand, that tip is going to move and hit the cue ball at a different spot other than the one that you intended to hit. Right. So number one, master the fundamentals. Number two, and the most important one, master the mental game. Do your homework. Look, YouTube has a, a, a wealth of information when it comes to the mental game. You know, one of my personal favorites is Lanny Basham, who was the author of With Winning in Mind. You take a look at one of his videos that I highly recommend, The Secret to Prevent Overtrying. That video single-handedly helped me with my mental game for life. I can go for months without playing pool. And just because I remember the information that I learned in that video, I was able to transfer that to my game. You watch me play a set, you think that I've been playing all that time, even though I might not hit a ball for a, a, a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever. Hmm. So what I try to tell people is that you have to get to the point where you believe with every fiber of your being that you're going to make the shot. Stop worrying about the shot. Let the shot take care of itself on its own instead of trying to force it or make it happen. And that's where the mental part of the game comes in. You can't be result-oriented. You understand what I'm saying? You have to stay focused and just stay focused on what it is that you need that's going to give you the ability to make that shot, then go to the next. Same process. Make that shot, go to the next. Too many people worry about things that haven't even happened or too worried about it. Why are you going to, I've always said, if you play pool for 30 years, I had a guy come up to me that played for about 25 years and hell of a player. And he asked me a question one day. He says, how would you run this? And I said, well, I would shoot this shot and that shot. And he looks at me, he says, but Tony, that's a tough shot. The first shot you want me to shoot. And I looked at him and I said, if you believe that that's a tough shot after 25 years, you're in the wrong sport, buddy. You know, because it's like when you watch Jason Shaw, Joshua Filler play, do they look like they're afraid that they're going to miss? Never. Absolutely not. 
because they believe with every fiber of their being that they're going to make everything that's given to them. Ralph's okay the same exact way. All these players have that mentality, and that's what separates the men from the boys. You know, I, I got to so tell you this. Yeah, I got to tell you this, Tony. You'll appreciate this. I was interviewing C.J. Wiley, and he said the the time that he knew that he was a good player was when he stopped looking at shots and saying that's a hard shot or that's an easy shot and just said that's a shot. And when he was able to say that about every shot, he knew that he was on top of his game. So I, I, I kind of, yeah, that kind of relates to what you're saying there. That's great. Yeah. Well, so, think about it. You know, getting back to the fundamentals, right? When I teach the fundamentals, one of the, the things that really help people a lot is if you're the difference between an amateur and a pro, if you have a shot, right? And we're a cut shot on the side and the cue ball has to hit the bottom rail and then come up the top rail for position on the top rail, right? The amateur would look at that shot, right, and say, okay, I'm going to hit this with high follow, medium speed. They get down on the shot, and then they start questioning themselves, is it really medium speed or is it hard speed or is it medium hard or is it high or is it low or am I overcutting the ball or am I undercutting the ball, you see? Where when a pro does it, okay, I'm going to hit this high follow, medium speed before they even get down on the shot. What happens when you're on a computer and you have a file you no longer want? You click delete and you send it to the trash bin. Before I get down, I click delete and I send it to the trash bin the fact that I said high follow, medium speed. Why? Because I believe in my decision and I trust it 100%. So my focus at that point is once I strike the ball, focus on following through in a perfectly straight line to the intended aim point while ignoring both the path of the object ball and the cue ball. Because focusing on, on your technique will equal consistent pocketing, whereas focusing on the outcome of the result of the shot will equal consistent missing. You see what I'm saying? Because when you focus on your technique, like I said earlier, the shot will take care of itself on its own. You're not trying to force it to happen and give your subconscious mind a chance to come in and says, hey, buddy, I'm here to help you. I see you having problems. Oh, you're not sure if that ball's going to go in? Let me help you out by steering the cue stick in the direction you want the object ball to go to. Or... You know the object ball's going to go in? No problem. I'll help the cue ball. Let me steer the cue ball in the direction you want to go to, and then you overcut the ball. You see? The idea behind that is to focus on your technique. You focus on your technique, the shot will always take care of itself on its own. I feel like I should pay you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and and I feel like you've been watching me play. <laughs> so Because I know there's times where I'm, you know, feeling balls in and twisting and doing stuff because I just don't have that confidence all the time that what I'm aiming for is the right shot. So you, you hit the nail on the head. I'm a pretty good player, but I think you, you really were able to illustrate the difference between a pretty good player and a professional. And, you know, I think the viewers are really going to love that. So Tony, you've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've answered so many questions, shared so many stories and, I think you're an awesome guy and I wish you the best of luck with uh, your your new life in Florida and, you know, maybe getting back out on the tournament circuit and, well, if there are, are any tournaments anytime soon, uh, but playing pool yeah. and just enjoying yourself. So let me ask you to just share any closing thoughts that you have with your fans out there or anyone else. Well, I mean, I've had so much support uh, throughout the years, especially uh people all over the world, you know, I've become friends with players from all over the world. And I've been so blessed to have met so many great people in my lifetime 
considering that growing up, I almost committed suicide when I was 15 years old. And going from that, thinking that I'm no good and I don't belong on this planet to becoming great friends with so many great people and positive people, uh, I could never thank you all for your support. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it, it makes me emotional knowing that I have so many great friends that have supported me throughout the years and still continue to do so through the good times and the bad. So thank you all so much for, for your friendship, your support, and I look always look forward to seeing you all especially my New Yorkers at, at some point when I go visit there.